For most of humanity, there's been a system of government where a small minority rules over the people. From emperors to monarchs to oligarchs, the will of the people, the desire for self-determination has been repressed. A group of visionaries envisioned a nation ruled by its citizens, one where leaders were chosen by its people to be held accountable. Hence, the United States of America was born. That dream of democracy has been defiled. We find today, our nation is run by a minority not held accountable to its people. Instead, special interests and money are the driving forces of our government. At Candidates Platform, we look to restore that vision. Our goal is twofold, to educate voters on the issues of the candidates running for local and state office, and to give the citizen the opportunity to run for office by having a simple, intuitive, cost-effective place to manage their campaign. Let's work together to restore democracy to the people. Hello, hello. This is Diego signing on to the CP Show. Hope everyone is having a fantastic Saturday night. It's been a crazy week in the political world and we have a lot to talk about. We have a great show for you guys tonight, um, but first, as always, we have my co-host, Kathleen Gomez. How are you doing, Kathleen? I'm pretty good. How are you doing, Diego? Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> it's, uh, like we said, definitely... Every uh, week, every time you come on, it's like it's been an, an, a wild week in politics. I mean, it has been for the last uh, couple of years, I'd say. That's true, uh, right? Every week, there's something new. <laughs> kind of crazy. I mean, this week, I, I would say... Well, yeah. One of the craziest weeks um, we've had. The fall, of, you know, I mean, with the Taliban and the fall of the yeah, yeah, military I, presence in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, it's just been it's such a it's been such a wild ride. I mean, I I kind of one thing I like to look at um, just to kind of lighten it up a little bit because there's so much horrible stuff with all of it. But if you have a chance, um, I recommend you go watch. There's these videos, and because these these Taliban guys, a lot of these guys are you know rural mountain men from these small villages in Afghanistan, they haven't, you know, they're, they're living in worlds, you know, 200 years back technology-wise. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because you'll see, you know, these, these Taliban guys, and these guys are like hardened killers. And um, there, there's, a, there's a video on them, and they're all driving around in bumper cars because they've never seen that before. And they're <laughs> like, they have their AK on their back, and they're like bumping into each other like kids, you know? Um, and they had another one where there's a guy with an uh, like an RPG on his back, and they went into one of the military bases, and there's all the military equipment, mm-hmm. and they're just playing with like the, you know, because it's a lot of gym equipment. It's like kind of well, it's like, like huge amounts. I mean, it's yeah. it's like an amazing amount of dollars that are being left behind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think they're this. They now have the Taliban is now um, has like the fifth strongest air force in the world now because of all the like heli- black hawk helicopters and stuff they left behind unbelievable uh, why I mean, you can't use any of it because you know you need to like be highly skilled and you need not yeah, apply but, you know they they can still do so you know they can learn anybody can learn and create havoc and damage right i mean i think we're getting i think we're getting it back i think they sent they're sending soldiers to recover most of it but um, it's crazy. yeah, no, it's definitely uh, definitely pretty pretty intense. But. Yes, yes, a lot of things are pretty intense, and then nationally, right? You get the whole issue of mandated va- and mask, and whether that's all coming back again. So it's yeah. um, it's definitely, 
and and you were sick, so you. What do you think about the whole COVID thing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely um for those who don't know, I mean, it's definitely something that's pretty pretty rough. I mean, I was I was I was out for a while. I was out for about a week. Um, and I mean, it was it was it was probably up there, but like the sickest I've been. I mean, it was it was a tough. Uh, you know, everyone was saying it's like kind of you know a bit of a joke or whatever. I mean, it's it's intense. I really you know I, I won't knock it because it was um like I said uh, I got pretty much as sick as I've ever been. Yeah. Yeah. No, you did sound sick. That's why we weren't able to do the show. But I want to remind people that they can call in at 323-744-4831 if you want to ask us any questions. And we're going to have an interesting show this time. And it was rather it was your idea, Diego, that you wanted to pick a couple of politicians who you felt were instrumental into shaping national policy or people that we could maybe need to have in the political field today. That's kind of the whole point of it is, you know, a big thing we do is we do our whole fitness and tennis platform is we want to have uh, something where we kind of allow, you know, the smaller people, the working for smaller positions who aren't so well known, we give them a spotlight. And I thought what would be more appropriate than for us to do a new segment we're calling the case for, where we make our case for politicians in history who aren't necessarily like the big names. You know, it's very easy to say, make the case for like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. So we're going to be picking, we're going to do this kind of show occasionally, and we're going to pick um, lesser-known historical figures who we think have had just as much of a, a sway on society as, um, as kind of the more bigger names, you know? Right. Like the one that you've always decided that you, you've always had admiration for, which I always remember because I really haven't studied him, but from what I used to hear was Huey Long, who I always thought was a very corrupt politician out of Louisiana. But some of the things that you were talking about is very interesting character. Yeah, I mean, and, and so that's kind of the, the first one we have is, and this is kind of my, my case for, and it's for Huey Long. Um, he was actually someone who was, I, I believe, very, very instrumental in our current life. He was, a lot of his social policies were actually um, kind of, were things that FDR actually implemented, and, and a lot of the New Deal is um, is kind of directly taken from a lot of his policy positions, and so it's something that I'm I'm kind of really excited for. With um, is that is that your cat that's trying to talk to you? Yeah, right I didn't realize he was under the couch, <laughs> so I'm going to kick him out. <laughs> maybe let him stay. Maybe he'd be interested in what you said. <laughs> Uh, sorry about that, but yes, I um. So yes, yeah, so I'm doing the case for Huey Long, and for those who don't know, he was the governor of Louisiana in the 30s, and so he was Louisiana in the in the you know kind of early turn early turn of the 20th century was a very very rural, very very poor state. I mean, it still is in a lot of ways, but it was a state that was run by a small, extremely small minority of very wealthy, you know, old Southern families and some large corporations, kind of the biggest being Standard Oil. And basically what he did was he grew up in kind of the poor, in a poor northern city in Louisiana. What's kind of interesting about the city was actually during the Civil War, they refused to fight for the Confederacy because they saw it as a fight for 
the wealthy, the rich men's slaves, and they were, of course, they didn't own, they didn't own any slaves, so they didn't really care about... Uh, his, and this is his family, you were uh, saying? This is the, t- the, the town that he was from. Okay, okay. Um, they, that, that town refused to fight in the Civil War, basically. And so, and their whole thing was that they were uninterested because they didn't have slaves, and it was for the wealthy plantations in the South, and so they didn't... Uh, particularly care about any of that. And so it was uh, called Winfield, Louisiana, which is up in the north of Louisiana. Um, and so he's actually someone who I think there's a lot of parallels to today. He created this program called the Share, Share Our Wealth Program in the 30s. And um, it's kind of similar to what's kind of going around a lot with uh, um, with kind of the, the new movement of, you know, share the wealth and whatnot. But basically his whole thing was that and especially, and this was mainly focused on Louisiana, but you had a small minority of people who controlled. And he kind of had this famous speech where he said, "You know, you have, why would you have one man allow one man to have ninety? You know, you go to a picnic and have ninety percent of all the food and walk away with it." And uh, and so his whole thing was is that you know you should. He wasn't a communist in the sense of he didn't believe in private ownership. He said, you know, you should be able to make a life for yourself and be wealthy. But there comes a point where there's, you know, the, the, you can only uh, basically accumulate so much wealth before you start to then take away from your other, you know, from other people. And so his whole thing was is that there's a there's a point where once you reach a certain point, you know, that money should go back to the people for, you know, social programs, social welfare, stuff like that. So was he a socialist? Um, It's tough to say because it was. You know, I think he wasn't a socialist in what we looked at socialists today. Um, he was a he was a populist and a laborist. So okay. he was you know, for for the working man. Working and, man. Right, and, and so that was kind of his whole thing. I mean, the um, like I said, Louisiana was a very poor rural area, and so when he was young, most of Louisiana didn't have electricity or um, running water. You know, uh, proper sewage systems and stuff like that. And so, in his term of governor, it was called the Kingfish. His whole I, yeah, right. I remember that term. Right, and he and and so his whole thing was basically when I mean, he he basically created took Louisiana um, to a place where they he they built roads and electric electric poles and sewage systems for for the poor in Louisiana and the in the north and you know not just the kind of the city um, the city and the um, and, you know, the wealthy areas. And uh, he actually created the very first program for um, lunch and breakfast for children in public oh, Really? Yeah. For all children? For everybody who's in public school? In Louisiana. Okay. So, um, yeah. And so basically it was one of the first programs where, you know, it's one of those things that now we think about it as, you know, standard. But back in those days, um, basically feeding your children was considered the parents' duty. And so there was no school lunches or school breakfasts for kids. And for uh, many poor uh, Louisianians, they maybe didn't have breakfast, the, 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 the poor students. And so that was his a big thing. I mean, the kind of the detractors, a big thing about it was he was a man who he wasn't a, constitu- a strict constitutionalist. I mm-hmm. think he uh, so he, he very much, you know, he ran Louisiana, uh, he, you know, filled it up with his supporters and he would play pretty dirty um, with uh, people who disagreed with them. 
so so he kind of ran kind of like he was king of his ship and of of the legislature, right? Didn't he mm-hmm. have control of them? Right. So basically, you know, he filled basically the legislature with people who um, who agreed with him. I mean, most kind of the most notable thing was uh, he was he was assassinated. Um, and so he died in, I believe it was 1935. And no, it was, I'm sorry, it was in, yeah, 1935. And what it was, was the reason he died was he was actually, there was a judge that was um, a, a big proponent for Standard Oil and for these large corporations and had been kind of a thorn in the side and had, you know, deemed a lot of his um, social programs as like unconstitutional. And so basically what they decided to do is because he kept being elected, what they decided to do is they, they gerrymandered and redistricted the, his district so that that judgeship uh, was basically the, the actual position was gotten rid of. And um, ah. that judge's son-in-law was the one who shot him. And, and it was that it was that early 1935. So how long was he did he serve? Um, so he started in the mid 20s. I believe he, okay. he was a lawyer. And he, um, he, I believe, started as governor in uh, 1928, and I believe he kind of started the leg in the legislature. I believe in 23. So he was around for about 12 years, and um, and, and and if you are from Louisiana, you probably do know who Hugh Long is because quite a lot of the family, the Longs, have uh, been you know senators and and other governors and stuff. So it, it, his his family's, you know, and his kind of legacy has been quite strong in, um, in Louisiana. And a lot of people in Louisiana really do actually, um, have actually said that, you know, during the Great Depression, Louisiana held stronger than a lot of other states because they had those programs um, to kind of the social safety nets. They didn't have, they didn't just kick people to the wind like they did in places like California. Right, 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 right. That's amazing that he had the foresight back in those days to be able to see that there had to be something. Well, if he came from the poor, then I guess, you know, he saw what needed to be done. But so the stuff that he did, he was he a con- was he a congressman or senator? He was a governor. He was just a governor. He was governor and then he became a United States senator um, for about two years before he was assassinated. Oh my gosh! He was the one who uh, who uh, succeeded him. Wow! So, I thought he had lived a much longer lifespan. I didn't realize that he had even been assassinated. He died, and I think that's the thing is that, especially in the you know sixties to eighties, I think he's someone who has you know outside of certain circles is pretty unknown. Um, but he is he is someone who I think had a lot of uh, important. I mean. Almost everyone agrees that the, a lot of the um, the New Deal followed kind of half steps, and, and that was his big issue with FDR was that you know he, he was pretty uh, radical, mm-hmm. um, especially back then. I mean, he he had a, a basically his saying was "Every man a king," where he believed that every man should have the ability to be like the king over his own domain and, and have you know um, and a lot of kind of the, you know, the freedoms as well as the ability to kind of make a life for himself. And so he was very much against the um, kind of, you know, the just the basic wealth and equity. And I think that's why now it's so topical because, you know, we're in a very similar situation where we do have a very, very small number minority of people that, you know, do control so much of the wealth. Right. And, um, 
you know, we have now that guy that's, you know, the one guy that's showing up to the picnic that's taking eight or ninety percent of the food. Right, 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 right. Well, and you know that the ability to, I guess, have a well, and I wonder what he would think of the system that is now just giving so much, you know. Mm-hmm without having attached any responsibility, like, you know, getting $300 per kid in your family, you know, yeah. where everything now is, you know, kind of given to people. Mm. I wonder if he would agree with what was going on. I mean, I, I, I think that that's the thing is, is that, and, and that's why, you know, I think the term socialist has been like ruined is because now a social socialist is in one part. Now you have to be, part of, you know, be a socialist and these social issues. Um, so, you know, you have to be a subscriber to, you know, critical race theory and race, race right. and stuff to be kind of considered a true socialist. Despite being a socialist being really properly nothing to do, it's all about fiscal policy, nothing to do with social policy. Um, and, and, and then, of course, there is, you know, a, the kind of classic version of the kind of populist and laborist is, is it's for the working man, but it, there is an emphasis on the working man. So it's, it's the, you know, it's, it's for people who, you know, are working and, and just because that is a, that is a common thing, you know, it's, it's quite common that someone works their whole life and they get an accident and they, they, they need help and they need, there should be a system in place for those pe- people to have, you know, a kind of social safety net or, or you do have the people that, you know, for whatever reason, just can't work. There are those people that are physically or mentally unable to, and, and you can't, you know, kind of have this like laissez-faire capitalism, right? Um, you know, just kind of discarding people. Um, and then but you can't of, give them everything either. I mean, I know that probably does, but but there has to be. You have to get something. If they're going to get things, they have to at least do something for it. Because I think that's part of just contributing back, you know. It's it's nothing is for free, nor should it be handed to you. When you have a situation where you need help, yes. But it shouldn't be a perpetual thing because I don't know how that motivates people to get, you know, to get involved or to do, to, to get back in the workforce because, yeah, I mean, you know. people don't, nobody really wants to be a ward of a state. Right. Um, I think that's that's the thing is is that most people that get you know help from you know from uh, from the government, a lot of these people are hardworking people. You know, I mean, I mean the the fact of the matter is, and this is kind of the same issue back then, where there was a lot of hardworking people that were just basically being trod upon, and. And the same thing today, you know, you have people that work two jobs, but the, the, the pay is so low that they're not actually, you know, able to live comfortably. They, they need help from the government. And you have, you know, you hear people at Amazon or Walmart um, and, and they work there, but the company refuses to allow them to work the full 40 hours. So they don't have to. Right. And, and so that's, I think, more of the, the bigger issue. I think outside when you obviously will always have your kind of deadbeats. But the majority of people, no one wants to be a ward of the state. No one wants to be someone that is perpetually, you know, um, on welfare. I think most people want the ability to work, but there also is the need for them to work with dignity and to earn a living that they can like sustain themselves and live on. And I think that's that's so kind you of you don't think that with this with especially in the past two years with all this assistance with unemployment, you know, your unemployment wages going up, 
with um, the three hundred dollars per child. Do you you don't think that that maybe is encouraging people not to work? I, mean, I think my I think the issue people look the wrong way. It's, yes, you know people got bonus on their unemployment, but I think the bigger issue is that why is a person who works a full time you know full forty hours why would why do they make less money than um, someone who uh, why do they make less money than than someone on government aid. And that's the bigger issue. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the thing that everyone has me that they were trying to talk to back then. And that's kind of what it relates to today where yes, you know, with all the benefits and stuff like that, you know, a, someone who works like an EMT, you know, shouldn't be making less money than, than if they were just not working. And that's right. the problem. Not that I don't think the issue is that the government's giving too much money. I think the issue is that, you know, corporations and and a small minority of people like them are paying people so little that that's a lot, that that's a, a situation they can run into. Yes, I guess so. And and it, but then when you look at and, and that kind of brings us into the next person that I kind of really admire was Barbara Jordan, and. Mm-hmm. I lead into this issue into with her because, you know, a lot of people have issues with illegal immigration and just giving people come over the ability to get everything, you know, to get on welfare programs with with, you know, health care, education, new housing, food stamps, stuff like that. And she was really interesting. I remember her as being the first African-American woman to be elected into the Texas state legislature, which back then in the 60s was, you know, late 60s was a big deal. You know, people, um, that was a big accomplishment. She was really a well-known civil rights lawyer who had a very strong belief in the Constitution of the United States and that that was something that all citizens should uphold as being a standard and not even a president could change because if we stayed true to the Constitution, that was really who we were. So, she was also really well known for an eloquent speech she gave um, when the judiciary met to impeach Nixon, you know, and she was well known for that. She was also had an incredible speech she gave at the Democratic Convention in 1964, I believe it was. Or maybe, no, I'm sorry, it was later. And um, and that she felt finally, like as an African-American woman, that she was part of the system. And so she was a big believer in the Constitution, what the United States stood for. And she headed, she died from leukemia, but for the two years previous to that, she was head of the this um, commission on civil, the reform of, of illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. She was a firm believer that illegal immigration was really bad in the national interest of the country. And she was even against letting a lot of people in legally. And she, her comment was, which I always thought, I thought, thought it was really interesting that any country who had any kind of standard controlled its borders. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, she was a civil rights. She came from, you know, very poor community farming, I guess, in Texas and uh, was a civil rights you know, lawyer who was adamant that you could not, you had to have control of your borders and you could not let people in, you couldn't grant them immigration through illegal ways. This just Mm -hmm. wasn't the best thing for the country and the national interest of the people and the American worker. Mm -hmm. And she thought that that needed to be controlled. She was really against um, 
all the visas that were being given. And in fact, there was one um, immigration bill where they would have, I think, increased. It was 2013. Actually, this this piece of legislation came from the results of the work that she did during um, the Clinton administration. He had actually was going to follow through with Barbara Jordan's recommendations that we would control our borders. And I don't know if you remember this, but he did come kind of come out strong with, and so did Obama, that um, the borders needed to be controlled, that you couldn't let people in illegally and reward them with citizenship, that it would be something that the country needed to control. Mm-hmm. And um, in 2013, there was this gang of eight, they called them, and they were going to pass legislation that actually would have allowed, I think the Congressional Budget Office did a study and found that by the year 2013, if this bill had gone through, there would have been 14.2 million new immigrants. And that was even more than what was being done at the day, which I think they were giving a million visas out a day. So when you think of that, you know, there's always been this issue about how we control our borders. And it's funny because I, I don't I remember her very well, but I don't remember her speaking out about this. But when I was reading about her again, I said, man, she's right on the mark once again. Her issues are not so different than what's ex- – they're exactly what we're experiencing today. Yeah. And it's interesting that as a Democrat, she was so uh, adamant about controlling, controlling um, our borders. And in fact – when she died, and it was two years after she had been on the commission, there were a lot of people that were upset because she was the like the the voice of morality. You know, you couldn't really, even though she was against illegal immigration and definitely against controlling legal, you could not really debate her on moral issues because she was such such a a person of you know integrity and as someone of her word. And so when she died, that really kind of let this gap, left the left and right wing kind of coalition take over where they really saw that it wasn't about the national interest anymore. It was about getting an electoral kind of behind them, people who would vote for them because they allowed them in. And in fact, um, Clinton was kind of going to go and support her hard stands but back down supposedly because of all the Chinese um, people who gave who contributed to his campaign to allow more immigration, to allow more people in. And she really wanted to like stop the visas, stop giving people green cards. So it was interesting that once she died, Clinton totally reversed. And that was, they say, through pressure of the Chinese who had given so much to his campaign. So I found that kind of really intriguing about this woman. And she was, um, she, you know, was just such a, a, a believer in that the Constitution really set the tone of what we were. And if we were to allow anything less of that, that we were going to, that we were going to ruin what we had. And so it's just kind of interesting. She she really fought against it. And I think now, I think most liberals would be definitely, how would have shut her down. But mm-hmm. she's still, she talked about the stuff that we're still facing, which is how many people can you le- let in illegally? How many people can you allow to come in here? And, and she was against letting so many siblings. You know, and once you get a citizenship, you can bring everybody who's related to you. She was against that completely too. And so it's intriguing that she was somebody that was very prominent 
in the late 60s and 70s, and even in the early 80s, who was a Democrat, a civil rights lawyer, but who believed so strongly in controlling borders. And she probably was the last Democratic voice that gave a warning to that, that said, you know, if you keep on doing this, there is going to be chaos and a destruction of our system because you can't let everyone in and you can't let them in illegally. So I just found it so intriguing by, by what she stood for and what she said. Mm-hmm. Do you ever hear, do you remember anything about her? Do you ever um, in your history or anything have heard about what she did? I know her for a slightly different thing. Um, she was a big proponent of the um, CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for those who don't know, I do have a little bit of a back, background in banking. Um, and so that was a really, in my opinion, a good law because basically what it did is it forced um, banks to essentially, you know, when basically banks, especially of a bigger size, couldn't just go into a town and only open branches in the wealthy areas. So for, for example, just kind of to use um, the L.A. metro area. Um, so, for example, like if a bank wanted to come into that market, they would have to still have branches in East L.A. and, and Compton and Irvine. They couldn't just go to, you know, Santa Monica and right or La Jolla, skip over La Jolla, like the, yeah, exactly. And so they had to basically um, service um, poor and kind of minority communities mm-hmm. because that was a big issue. They're called um, banking uh, deserts or financial deserts, where and it's still to this day, it's still very much an issue um, where people of you know uh, po- poor people don't have access to banks and so what they have to lend on rely on is this predatory um things that big one is check cashing um payday loans stuff like that they have to deal with kind of these very predatory institutions that aren't regulated because banks you know don't want to go there because there isn't the, the, the money to be made there right right so, right right so i kind of knew her because of that she was a, was a big supporter of that well, she was really interesting, too, because, you know, it's something – she was a politician that you just don't find anymore because she had both sides. Like, for instance, there was a – prop. I think it was Proposition 187, which was um, – it sought, like, to deny, you know, benefits to, to uh, persons not authorized in the United States, so children of illegal immigrants, and it was to keep them out of the school system. And she was very against that. She said you can't – you know, penalize the children with their education because their parents came in here illegally. But she believed very strongly that you had to control it because she was quoted for, she was saying like um, that any country that's worth its grain of salt controls its borders. Mm-hmm. And so she could go on both sides. You know, that's something you don't see right now in American politics. You either are, you either are one side or you're the other. You can't go back and forth and say, okay, well, this makes sense, yet this here makes sense too. Yes, let's educate the people, the children of illegal immigrants, but let's don't let's also control the borders and not let them, you know, not let them come in just in numbers and droves, because yeah. that would degrade the education system. You can't, you know, you just can't can't allow that kind of influx without some kind of control. The, it's, I find it very interesting because. I, you know, the Democratic Party until very, very recently, I mean, I would say really the last five or six years, um, has had a very 
traditionally always had a very relatively, you know, logical and fair stance on immigration as well as uh, um, crime as well. And I mean, a lot of, you know, major names now, you know, whether you look at their names, Biden, both Biden and Bill Clinton um, were, you know, on record of, be, of being, you know, very reasonable about these issues. And it wasn't until very, very recently with this whole kind of open borders, you know, we need to let everyone in thing. That was kind of always traditionally seen as something that only, you know, radicals believed as well as, you know, ultra capitalists who just wanted cheap labor. Right. Um, those are the only two people, two groups of people that would support something like that. Um, and that's who she fought against most of her right. life with those with that, you know, those people who just wanted cheap labor and those people who wanted to let people in to have a political base to be voted and, you know, to right. whatever office. And and I think traditionally both Republicans and Democrats of, you know, kind of reasonable, reasonable mental mind would all agree for that. And it's just very recently um, where it's become this this thing of where. You know, to be a Democrat now, you have to essentially be for open borders. I mean, I think it's very right. hard to be a Democrat and not be because, I mean, the general party line of the Democrat Party is, you know, you have to be for, um, for for open borders. You have to be to to let everyone in, and there is a small group of Republicans as well that are also into that. I mean, thing with the Afghanistan thing now, they want to bring right. all these you know, millions and millions of Afghanis into the country. Um, and, and I think most people, reasonable people are against that, but you do have the Democrat Party and these minority of Republicans who seem to want to let in whoever wants to come. And, you know, the other thing she was really well known for, too, was that she could pull both sides and, and, and together to make a bipartisan issue. I mean, there was a quote that um, by one who was at the uh, the first, com- you know, meeting of this commission and that she came, you know, she came to the first meeting and said, you know, hey, while five to four decision by you know, the Supreme Court meant something, in this commission, it meant nothing. And she said that, um, you know, we need to come to consensus about a national policy that serves the national interest. And I think that's what I don't hear anymore is the national interest of the United States. It's all, you know, more about, I think, other issues. But when we forget what is in the best interest of the country, we kind of, I think, are breaking the system down because it always comes to that. We have to do it in what's in the national interest because we're all part of the system that we want to belong to that has, is a great system. If we understand that that has to come first. Right. So I don't know. It's, I found it very intriguing to go back and remember her because I remember listening to her speak along with Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem because she was also a feminist, but she was just someone who saw both sides and could go understand both sides and pull these people together to try to make a policy that would be in the best interest of the United States. And that's why I think was she was one of the people that I, I, I chose to, to look into and talk about tonight because that has now become such a rare thing and it's, and it's we need more people like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think it's kind of. Um, I mean, I think that's a good thing for. I think the case for Barbara Jordan is that you know we do need 
um, people who, you know, you can be, who are Democrats, who don't necessarily have a complete ideological, like, in line and with, um, with kind of the, the general kind of gist of the party. And I think that's another big thing that we want to work with with Canada's platform is that basically what we want to do is we want to have people who are Democrats who, you know, maybe you don't necessarily believe in everything the Democratic Party, um, right. but you're generally a Democrat. And I mean, I think we, sh- I, I think we should have, you know, there is a space on Canada's platform for Democrats who, and Republicans who don't, um, fit into the mold of kind of what you must be to be kind of. Right, to be a part of that party system. And mm-hmm. I think, I think that what we're, what our great hope is for this CAS platform is that somebody who's, uh, say watching their children go through school and really have an issue with what's going on, that they understand you don't have to be, uh, a seasoned politician. You don't have to be a politician for the rest of your life. All you have to do is give, maybe you give two years, maybe you give four years, but to get involved and give back and then go back you onto your business and let somebody else take over because I think that that's key. Because if you sit there and you stay too long, I think it does, it corrupts you. And so we're hoping that we could get the the basic person who says, you know what, I do want to do something. I don't want to be it for the rest of my life, but I would like to get involved in, you know, the city council because this is an important time. I see them going in this direction. I think we should go in a different direction. How do I get involved? How can I make a difference? How do I be part of the system? Because it's very daunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of, you know, we we want to have, you know, the Barbara Jordans and the Huey Longs, as well as the Joe Bidens and Donald Trumps, uh, basically where there can be, you can be as in line with party or out of line with party as you want to be, and you can, there's still a place for you. And I think right. that kind of leads into, I think we're going to go on a little bit break, a quick yes. little break, but... When we return, we're going to talk, make uh, the case for someone who has kind of traditionally, made, probably most notably, was someone who was not part of the two-party system and probably had the best shot of someone who could have been Right. Playing. He came um, very close. So, exactly. And I mean, a lot of people would say that the reason Clinton was president was because of him. So when we return from our break, we will be making the case for Ross Perot. For most of humanity, there's been a system of government where a small minority rules over the people. From emperors to monarchs to oligarchs, the will of the people, the desire for self-determination has been repressed. A group of visionaries envisioned a nation ruled by its citizens, one where leaders were chosen by its people to be held accountable. Hence, the United States of America was born. That dream of democracy has been defiled. We find today, our nation is run by a minority not held accountable to its people. Instead, special interests and money are the driving forces of our government. At Candidates Platform, we look to restore that vision. Our goal is twofold. To educate voters on the issues of the candidates running for local and state office, and to give the citizen the opportunity to run for office by having a simple, intuitive, cost-effective place to manage their campaign. 
Let's work together to restore democracy to the people. I tell you, whenever I hear that commercial, I want to get a flag and run out, run outside the door and start waving my flag. It gets me, it gets me so motivated. What can I say? It's pretty, uh, I guess they did a good job with uh, the gravitas. <laughs> yes, he did. I always feel, you know, invigorated and ready to go out there and uh, change the world. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yes. So our next person we're going to be making the case for is Ross Perot. Um, for those people who don't know who he is, he um, is kind of a man of many hats. He's a billionaire, a big businessman. Uh, he was a big philanthropist, as well as he was the man who ran a party in the 1992 election. Uh, third party campaign for the Reform Party. Um, and it was something that was probably the closest we've ever gotten to a legitimate third party, yes. at, least, at least in the, you know, in the, in the last 200 years of kind of Republican. Yeah, he was. I, I remember him very well because at the time I was director of administration for the 1982 convention. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a real fear that he was actually going to pull it off. And no matter what they did, he just kept on gaining momentum. You remember they had the characters, characters uh, I can't say that word, of him with the little tiny guy with big ears, because he mm-hmm. did have really big ears. Right. But um, I remember there was a big underlying fear that he was going to pull it off. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he definitely kind of hit a middle ground. And, and I think that's the thing with Reform Party, because you had, um, it kind of was this... Uh, you know, big kind of big tent group of, you know, Democratic voters and Republican voters. I mean, the other big, you know, for, for example, the other big Reform Party nominee was uh, Pat Buchanan, you know, so that then right. those two were very, very different. And so, um, although I believe Perot didn't support Buchanan, um, it's one of those things of where there's definitely, the Reform Party was, was a party that, you know, really would have kind of sucked votes out of both the GOP and the TNC. I think it was something that was um, a little bit before my time, but I'm sure both. Well, there were some people that said that that was um, Perot was put up by the GOP to, to draw votes from, you know, to take them away from Clinton. But I, I do remember the fear. It was a couple of days during the convention or right before it started, which was in July that, there was a real, I mean, it was kind of an eye-opening and a startling thing for most of the people that were working in the Democratic Party that he actually had a real good chance of pulling it off. And yeah. they were very afraid. Well, and I think the, the big thing about it was, and the reason I'm making the case for Ross Perot was, um, one of Ross Perot's big things was, you know, he was a, um, a man who was very involved with technology. He was uh, the top salesman for IBM when he worked there, as well as he created his own company, um, you call it EDS, and so electronic data systems. And so he was a man who really understood kind of technology. And I think in the early 90s, he was someone who understood that we would, you know, be going towards kind of the internet connectivity and kind of the, the, the kind of the world. I think he was someone who understood what, what direction we were going in regards to the internet. And so this is in 1992, he was talking about, one, the outsourcing of jobs to, to other countries. But the other big thing he did, and the reason that it's very important to me, is he wanted to do what he 
called um, inect, uh, electronic direct democracy. And what that essentially was, was the predecessor to essentially having virtual town halls or, or electronic um, town halls, which is something we want to do on Hans Platform. Right, it um, is. Right, and so he was basically someone who, back in the 90s, was talking about having, you know, basically allowing candidates to reach out through the internet, and that's kind of exactly what we're trying to do. And so, it's so to bring like, bring more people into the into the ability to yeah. find out what was going on. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was basically his whole thing was as a third party and as reform was to kind of get rid of the structures that we had with the GOP and DNC, and to, as I said, with the with kind of with the advent of the internet, I think he saw it as something that would basically help. You know, everyday people both brought in get more involved in politics. And so I think it's something that's massively, I think he's someone who's massively was obviously ahead of his time, um, but was someone that I think I, you know, I personally look up to. Um, and what happened to him, do you know? Um, so he, his, the candidacy was a little, I think the big issue, I think the big issue with any third party is that everyone who's serious about running a campaign is going to run a Republican and Democrats campaign. And so uh, the biggest issue with it was just the logistics of running a campaign. It's mm-hmm. not simple, especially presidential campaign. I mean, it, it right. is not a simple feat. It's a massive undertaking that requires, you know, many, many, many well-educated and experienced people to do their jobs. And I think that Like was, they say, boots on the, on the ground. Do you need right. the boots on the ground? Mm-hmm. And the coordination. I think that was the biggest issue that the, the kind of the Reform Party had was it didn't have that, you know, I think those those people who had the experience like the DNC. A lot of them were, you know, kind of outsiders and populists, and um, and and they had great ideas, but they didn't have the know-how, the technical know-how to really pull it off. And so his, he did. He campaigned very well. He pulled very well, but he just really couldn't. They couldn't reach out and kind of have and have that infrastructure that the other parties had, had set up. Like the door to door, knocking on door to door, doing pamphlets, leaflets, you know, they, because that's what pam- campaigns were like, doing mm-hmm. the different media things, you know. So, yeah, I can imagine how difficult it was for but him. It's, it's also, you know, there's the smaller things I think people are worried about, you know, when, it's, when you're running for a bigger election, um, when you have your the party, they – you know, they're doing this every four to two years, you need the contacts. And so the person who's setting up the, you know, the um, cam- um, the campaign rally for the Republican, let's say, or the Democrat, is going to know, you know, have contacts with all the various, you know, the, the people who set up the stage, the people who set up these stands, um, the security details, all that. They've been doing it for 30 years and so they, they know who to talk to. And, and when you're a newcomer to this kind of thing, you're doing everything for the first time. And so I think that was, in my opinion, the biggest thing that really reason they, didn't, they couldn't win was because they just couldn't get that outreach the same way that the GOP and teams. Right. And right. And I think, I think what happened is when they both got so afraid, both parties, they started mm-hmm. to squeeze them, you know, right. so that even in the media – would not follow him or they would cut him out of the story because they both joined 
because I think they both were really scared that, you know, he had such a following. And it was one of those things that happened so quickly, you know, like within a matter of months, mm-hmm. boom, all of a sudden he went from, you know, like kind of like a, a laughing mm-hmm. stock to all of a sudden being a serious contender. And there yet again, you know, you see that the people back then really wanted somebody different than just the seasoned career politician who had been doing this since, you know, forever and ever. And so even back then, you know, there was like a starvation, like a desire to have somebody who could speak for the person, for the people, for the common guy who -hmm. understood what it was like to have a business or to start off something. And, you know, you know, career politician doesn't get it. And I I think the other thing that resonated with a lot of people was the staleness of kind of the traditional and the traditional like theocracy of the of the parties um in the debates he he made a very kind of comment that i liked a lot where he basically said that you know the constitution predates the industrial revolution so back when the, the constitution was written there wasn't electricity there wasn't trains telephones radios tv you know cars airplanes rockets, nuclear weapons, satellites, or space exploration. That, that's what he quoted. Um, so he's basically, and he's saying you know, there's a lot that they didn't know about, and he was like, I wonder what, what kind of document they would draft today. And so the big issue basically was that, you know, there was no, um, this kind of insistence on keeping everything kind of the same and, and, and not fluid and keeping it frozen in time isn't something that's realistic because the the world you know the world has changed changes and with new technology we have to kind of adapt to that and so i think that was another big thing that pro was quite popular with people um so do you think he was kind of like more of somebody who was saying that we had to the constitution had to be a little bit more bendable you know because we were changing as a society exactly more of a living document a living Um, document right and it's one of those things of, you know, a, a framework. I think it's one of those things that it should always be the framework, but we should still build on top of it. And, and I think that is what um, the founding fathers had in the original thing, because they they built on top of their own document with the Bill of Rights. So, you know, they I don't think they intended for it to be static. And I think that's the big problem today as well, is you have these people that, on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, who adhere to the Constitution as if it is, you know, must be taken absolutely directly with no ability to kind of um, to kind of change things that just don't make a ton of sense anymore. But um, it's interesting because if you look at Barbara Jordan, she mm-hmm. believed maybe with the additional Bill of Rights and whatever that the doc that the Constitution as it stood needed to be protected and followed exactly. And, and so she was a, I think, a, a lawyer. I think is going to have that take. You think they're um, going to have that take on it? I mean, I think most lawyers will. I mean, if you're a lawyer, you, you know, um, you go for law. You go for law and the Constitution, and especially constant. You know, she, I think she was a constitutionalist, and mm-hmm. and that's kind of the, the 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 I guess the difference is is that you know you can you know you do have constitutionalists in both parties. Do you think, I I wonder though, now with the Democratic Party being the way it is, if they would see it, I think they see it more as a living document to be changed because it doesn't represent them a lot, them as a, you know, as a, as a document anymore. I mean, I think there's, 
there, there's, there are, there are constitutions. And I mean, Tulsi Gabbard is a constitutionalist and she's a Democrat. Um, so I mean, I think there is, there are Democrats who are constitutionalists and there are, uh, there are Republicans who are not and, and vice versa. Um, so it's, it's, but it's one of those things of, you know, the, the constitution can a very narrow thing where it doesn't change at all. In my opinion, as well as Ross Perot's, isn't something that makes a lot of sense. For it not to change? Right. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it's something that needs to be built on. And I think, especially with the advent of the Internet, you know, I think, for example, I mean, a great one is, is, is there free speech on the Internet? Can companies, because traditionally, as the Constitution says now, there's nothing illegal or, or unconstitutional about a company stopping you from blocking or closing your Facebook account because you said something that they don't agree with. Because, right. You know, there's nothing in the Constitution that, that says that. And, and so, you know, and it, it, it would be impossible for them to because the founding fathers never imagined the idea of the Internet and computers and people you know, typing on it. And those things are just unimaginable back then. But now we're in a situation where we need to figure out, you know, can come to end. But you know uh, what? When you think about it, though, when you start to, you have a set of, of laws or this document, right, the Constitution, when you start to open it up and open it up, then it can almost get, what do I want to say, kind of like um, it changes its flu fluidity. It becomes mm -hmm. something different. So I can kind of see maybe it's because as I grow older, I can see that, yeah, Sounds like a great idea, but the more and more you make it malleable, you kind of how, somehow distort its meaning. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I just think that's the thing is, is that it's it's it, it has to because the world isn't static. So our what what's yeah, but either I mean yeah, sometimes you need to have you need to have certain standards that you always follow. Because they are based on a sense of morality, in a sense, and a way in which you value a certain system. Right, but the morality of, you know, um, 1776 isn't necessarily going to, you know... I don't know, not if you think of the national interest, if you think of it as that way, maybe not whether or not you should wear hose or you wear a wig, but, you know, like they did back then. But mm -hmm. as the standard barrier... Sometimes it's kind of good to keep it the way it is. The, the needs of a nation do change. I mean, I think back then they needed immigration. So it would make sense to not have anything in the Constitution regarding immigration, per se, because, you know, you back then there was... Well, you didn't have that many people. Right. But now we do. And so now we have change. too many. Right. And so now we need to update it so that it can we can have laws that reflect our current need, because we don't live in a... Yeah. But we what? don't have a bipartisan environment in which to do that. It's going to be either one way or the other. And that, that's what's unfortunate, right? That's why in Canada's platform, we hope that we can get people who can see both sides, who see mm -hmm. a reality that maybe, you know, career politicians don't and can abide by it and can somehow, you know, I think there's so many people that are afraid to say anything, even when it's like, okay, you're right on this, but you're wrong on that. And people mm -hmm. don't do that. So... It's interesting. It's an interesting time that we, we live in. I think I agree. I will agree with that. I mean, I think it's, I think that that's kind of the reason we're doing the case for 
is that I think we can look to the past to kind of help guide us through the present. And so I think we can look at, you know, three very different candidates and very different politicians and very different times and very different beliefs, but they all have relevance to today because, you know... They are. They're talking still the same stuff. It hasn't yeah. really changed. Right, and, and that's the thing is the, the, the plight of the working man right. from 1930 is not that different than the plight of, um, you know, of, uh, of the man of 2021. And the same thing with, uh, with Barbara Jordan, with, you know, the immigration. Legal immigration is the same it, stuff. The, right. We're still having the same issue we had in the seventies um, and eighties. And then, and then the same thing with Ross Pro, where we have in 1992, you know, a need for, the uh, a need for the systems and kind of the way things are done to update with technology, and we need that now because we're still, you know, acting like it's the 1950s with with our technology and our candidates. Well, and you know, so. and I guess I guess Kenneth's platform, you could see it as as actually um, kind of what Russ Perot is talking about is to bring the technology to the local people who. Ooh to help them be able to make decisions, to know who to vote for, to give them an opportunity to run. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think that that would be the best situation. I don't believe in career politicians because the situation is like Machiavelli said, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And eventually it does. It makes them think that they know better. It makes them think that they know something that the common person, you know, no, doesn't understand when really it, it, they do. Right. Yeah, and um, I think that's really the whole the whole point of it is, is that we're trying to learn, you know, from some of the these past politicians, and we're trying to make it so that we can, in a hundred years, I would love for someone to make the case for someone who used our, our website. And right, wouldn't that be great? Maybe who isn't super well known, but they they think they had an important effect on the country, and so that's they kind left, of they impacted, they left right. the footstep footstep or whatever footprint that would make a change and make things different. And I think that's, that's, you know, going to be the average guy. It's not going to be the, the yeah. career politician. But well, unfortunately, I think we are running out of time. So yes. Uh, and we were going to talk about Barry Goldwater, who was very, very interesting. A guy who was an ultra conservative who also became a very social kind of progressive guy. And so we'll leave him to the next time we do uh, in yeah. the case for, so, yeah, but everyone, I hope everyone has a fantastic rest of their Saturday night. Yes, and, and please be will, safe. Yep, we will be back in two weeks where I think we will be doing some, I think we're going to rate and uh, kind of argue about uh, presidents and we're going to kind of, you know, give them an A to F rating uh, going back to all the <laughs> so That should be that kind of be interesting. That will be interesting. Very different opinions and then there will be some that we don't know much about. So, Anyway, I hope everyone has a great rest of the night. Good night. Good night, everybody. I hope you enjoy the show.